Good morning, Heart and Soul. Good morning. And thank you for joining in our Pride Celebration, Celebrating Pride 2023. I am, this is, we're clearly on an adventure in faith in life. What I know and what I'm hoping to convey over these weeks that we are focused in our celebration, in our Pride Celebration, is the extent to which LGBTQ folks experience a real life adventure in faith. Amen. Just choosing to be and to be freely. Amen. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that isn't true for all of us individually and collectively, what I'm suggesting is that in our celebration of Pride Month, that we honor the degree to which this is true. Mm -hmm. And even as we set an intention to honor the degree to which this is true, I want us to know that we can't know the degree to which this is true. But even so, we open our hearts and our minds to expand our intention and our actions 
to embrace the full community. Everybody. Whatever is unfolding in their life and how they show up. You know that video could just go on for years. You know, all we've done is kind of pick and choose but it could just go on and on in terms of the, the contribution, the life work, the commitment to transforming how we are, how we be, what we do, how we see ourselves and others. It's a huge opportunity. And my prayer is that, that we take full advantage of this month. One of the things that, that I love about this process and how I learn is that every year I have an opportunity to do some research. And I love research. I love, dig, dig, somebody said, we know. <laughs> I, I love the opportunity to, to dig deeper, to challenge myself beyond a surface awareness. So look at here. I am using as my theme for our celebration this month, the theme that San Francisco Gay Pride has set, which is looking back and moving forward. You know, I love that because it reminds me that, that often when I was coaching and, and teaching that there is a practice that I often suggested to clients which is to tag back and then move forward. You know, it's lean in is the idea here. And this reminds me of that. And I know how powerful it is to just, to just in a Sankofa kind of way, to, to check back even as you are facing forward, but you're honoring, you're honoring all that has happened. You're, you're not attached, you're not locked in to the past. And yet you're honoring it because what? You already know that you're standing on the shoulders of those who have done the work so that you can stand and be you and do you in all the ways that we do. And I'm glad we're doing it. I just want us to acknowledge that that didn't happen overnight. That that didn't happen just because folks thought, oh yeah, you go ahead, do you. It happened because folks fought because folks sacrificed, because folks were committed. And so I want to talk a little bit about that more specifically. But let, would it be okay if I just kind of set the tone for uh, given what we teach and endeavor to practice, I want to pause for a minute and just set the tone, set the foundation on which we're going to build. Really, it's the, it's the uh, prism through which, the filter through which, I'm hoping that you'll see all that I want to share with you. Yes? Okay. So I'm going to begin with, <clears throat> excuse me, Ecclesiastes 3. And while I'm not going to go through every verse, one, because I already know that um, this is an ambitious message this morning. <laughs> and so um, I, I hate to say I'm not going to take the time, and yet I'm not going to take the time. So all I want to establish is that scripture is reminding us here that life unfolds, that life happens. And there's a time for it to happen this way. There's a time for it to happen another way. It just is that all of this in life 
has its place. There's a time when you're going to get married and, oh, it's just all of that. We can't convince you not to. And then there's a moment. when it ain't like that. <laughs> and so scripture is simply saying that all of that is the composite of life. All of that, and it's okay. It's gonna be some of all of that. Just get ready for it. Do, do, there's nothing often as believers in, in, in the divine, in the living one, in the all in all, Folks can mistakenly believe that that's a license for nothing to happen that they don't want to happen. Oh, I need those folks to stay after school because there's some, several lessons they've obviously missed. This scripture is saying that it's all going to happen. There's a time to seek. There's a time to lose. There's a time to keep and a time to cast away that it's all in there. Life unfolds in its own way. And I want to remind you that for years we declared this and we kind of, you'll see it kind of sneaking in again. Thank you for everything. I have no complaint whatsoever. Now look, that's not because we can't complain. And it's not because we haven't complained. And we're not declaring this because we believe we'll never complain again. We just know the disadvantage. We know the negative impact of complaining. We know that complaining doesn't change a thing. And so we're declaring that we're not going to invest our time and energy in complaining when we know that it is gratitude that greases the gears. When we know the power of gratitude and giving thanks, why would we invest our time and energy in complaining? Largely, I claim it's because I forget sometimes. And then I come to myself in a prodigal daughter kind of way, and it's all then. And I return to giving thanks for whatever it is that I just complained about. Because I know in the final analysis, it is beneficial in some way. Maybe getting my attention. Now, don't rush to judgment about it. It may be years before you're absolutely able to bless it. Some of y'all go to the front of the class, though, because stuff has happened, and you've told me. And no sooner than you got medical help or a quick consultation or you got back on your feet or whatever it was, you began giving thanks. So it takes as long as it, as it takes. It's just be willing to come into the divine realization that giving thanks is the key. Thank you for everything. I have no complaint whatsoever. If we could remember that the moment we recognize that we are complaining, and we go, ooh, ooh, mm -mm. Thank you for everything. I have no complaint whatsoever. You know, I've been sharing with you this notion of how we flow in consciousness. And I have purposely focused just on, it, it's a whole chart that, that I typically use, but I've only been focusing on the lower left quadrant. Because the lower left quadrant finds us in that place of complaint. 
in that place of feeling put upon, in that place of, of regret and doubt and fear. Of, even as I say it, there's a part of me that you just start to shrink, don't you? You start your shoulders drop and hunch over. You're, you're weakened. If we were able to connect you to sensory perception, however we were, you know, if I get me some special effects, we're going to be doing all kinds of stuff up in here. But in the meantime, imagine with me, if you will, that if we could, if each of us would connect it to whatnots in a way that we could get the readout on what's happening to us just with our thinking. So you see, the moment we start thinking, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, I'm so stupid. I knew better. I know that's going to be, you know how we do, that negative self-talk. But in that moment, while we're connected to all the whatnots, if we saw on the screen what that's doing to us, how that is shifting our cellular activity, how that is shifting our ability to stand in a divine knowing. So I'm laying the foundation here because certainly, as a black woman in these United States, I understand a system that works to having me feel this way. Having me crouch in the corner and not believe that I'm worthy. And if I've somehow come to believe that I am, I could make the mistake of tuning in and then begin to doubt the very truth of my being. And so this is true of all oppressed people because all I'm talking about is systemized, systemic oppression. That's all I'm talking about. So what, whatever group, whatever, whatever individuals based on ethnicity or nationality or, or gender or, or um, whatever it is, I couldn't begin to name and number all the possibility that all the possibilities that oppressors can, can land on and begin to do the work of oppression. What I want you to know is that it requires that you agree. And so in what I, what I share today, I want you to see how folks, even though the system was working to push them into this victim state of mind and being, that their own awareness had them choose something else. And for the life of me, sometimes you can't figure out how they do that. I think this, this is why we have Mother Harriet featured prominently in the sanctuary because there's an aspect of, how'd she do that? How'd she do that? And so today, there's, there's a bit of a, in my part two of looking back and moving forward, there's a bit of how'd they do that? So we know, I just want to remind you that, that although we celebrate and we, you know, power to the people around Stonewall, we know that that wasn't a beginning. But it was a beginning. It was the beginning of folks saying, that's the beginning. And I'm not mad whenever folks say, you know what, starting here, it changes. But at some point, we just want to be righteous around our history and know that even though we can call it the beginning, and it is the beginning of something, it certainly is not the beginning of gay activism. It certainly is not that. So I want to talk a bit 
about that, and I'm probably going to talk faster, as well, as fast as I possibly can. So look, in Ju July 8th of 1810 is the first recorded raid of a gay meeting place. And this was in London, and they arrested 27 men. And those men were tried, and six of the eight men were tried and convicted. And they were pilloried months later, which, if you know, means you put on public display. And so this is, the picture you see is very similar to, to what happened for them. Because part of this, in order to keep folks in this victim ideation, you got to victimize them. You know what I mean? You, you got to mash into their psyche that they are victims and that they're not worthy in all the things. All the things. In the United States, as early as the turn of the 20th century, several groups, here's what you want to know, worked in hiding to avoid persecution and to advance the rights of gays. So we don't know much about them because they were secreted. You see what I'm saying? But they did happen. And in 1806, no, I'm not even going to tell you about the 1906. Okay, look, one documented group is Henry Gerber's Society for Human Rights. It was formed in Chicago in 1924, and it was quickly suppressed. But they're now, as of 2015, on the house where they held the meetings. It has now been designated as a National Historic Landmark. Now, you know, sometimes we groan and moan. But I have to tell you, as for me and my house, I don't care when you come to, long as you come to. So it took as long as it took, and yet some folks in Chicago came too and said, you know, something happened here that we need to acknowledge. We didn't do right by it, but we're going to acknowledge that it happened. So this plaque that's on the building that uh, the U.S. Department of the Interior has set this as a national historic landmark. And it simply says that Henry Gerber founded and operated the Society for Human Rights out of his home at this location from 1924, 1923. The society was the first chartered organization advocating for the civil rights of gay people in the United States. Because of his involvement with the society, he was unjustifiably arrested and had his property confiscated, which makes the house a marker of the pervasive discrimination and persecution of sexual and gender minorities in the 20th century. So he did not live to see that or to experience it. But what I know is that it touches some folks. I want to share with you that in San Francisco, there was a club called the Black Cat. And in 1948, 1948, because I'm giving you a sense of all of this is pre-Stonewall, the setup, so that you can get a sense of that it wasn't magical. Stonewall was not magical at all. There's nothing in the civil rights movement that was some magical moment. Everything was building on itself, yes? So in 1948, the San Francisco Police Department and the Alcoholic Beverage Control Commission, in response to the Black Cat's increasing gay clientele. Now, in response to, I, I, 
how you respond to the people that are the clientele, unless you have an intention to oppress, because it's just they got some people in there. That's, how, that's what clientele means. They got people in there who are business for the business. But for the police who conspired with the beverage control, alcoholic beverage control, they began charging the owner with crimes of keeping a disorderly house. And the State Board of Equalization suspended the bar's liquor license indefinitely. Can, can you see the boot on the neck? So in response to this, the owner, who was heterosexual, took the state to court. And in 1951, the California Supreme Court ruled in order to establish good cause for suspension of his license, something more must be shown that many of his patients were homo, many of his clients, excuse me, many of his patrons were homosexual and that they used his restaurant and bar as a meeting place, end of quote. So that's what the court said. I'm giving you a sense of all that we're standing on as we're celebrating today. They said this was one of the earliest legal affirmations of the rights of gay people in the United States. Excuse me. <clears throat> the court, though, did say that the ABC, the, um, the Alcoholic Beverage Control Commission, might still close gay bars with, quote, proof of the commission of illegal or immoral acts on the premises. So in order to, so this is how, what happened out of that. So what they did was they passed a law authorizing broad powers for the ABC, and ABC, of course, is for the uh, Alcoholic Beverage Control, to close down any resort for sexual perverts, they said. And this is all in quotes. This is actually what was said. That was the California State Assembly in 1955. They passed that. So the Black Crat was shut down under this authority, along with a number of other establishments. And a then there was a test case involving the first and last chance bar in Oakland. And the California Supreme Court struck down this new law as unconstitutional. So I need you to know this stuff is happening in the background. And it's not just happening, folks are putting their life and they are investing their life savings in doing this. The decision was not a complete victory as the court noted that it had, that had the ABC's revocation been based on reports of women dancing with other women and women kissing other women, it might have upheld the law. So you can't just say because they're there, you got to catch them. So of course, you know what that did. It meant there were more raids and, and all the things with staging more frequent raids and mass arrests and one favorite tactic was to arrest drag queens, since impersonating a member of the opposite sex at the time was a crime. Jose Zaria responded by passing out labels to the drag queens to wear reading, I'm a boy. <laughs> so it could not be claimed that they were impersonating women. Do you see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? That there are, there are some folks who, who often go unnamed. What I want you to know is that the owner of the black cat spent about, he ultimately just, you know, he was just in a legal battle for 15 years. So he ultimately said he just couldn't sustain it. He had spent $38,000. But I need you to know, in today's money, 
it's $376, I'm sorry, $376,725. So almost $377,000 to allow his current clientele to be and to be free in his establishment. They lifted the bar's license in 1963, the night before the annual Halloween party. Now some of us understand the strategic intention of that. And uh, the Black Cat closed down for good in February of 1964. It's now the, the, the site is now the location of Nikos. And there's a plaque as of 2007 that commemorates that it was. I want to share with you more about Jose Zaria, though. The bar, the black cat began to have live entertainment, and he was one of those who, he began as a waiter, and then somebody who was playing music, he recognized as the opera karma. And so he started singing some of the arias. And that began his performing there, singing parodies of popular songs, etc. He encouraged patient, I'm sorry, patrons to be open and honest as possible, saying to them, there's nothing wrong with being gay. The crime is getting caught. And united we stand, divided they catch us one by one. At closing time, he would leave, leave patrons in singing, God save us, Nellie Queens, to the tune of God save the queen. <laughs> Sometimes he'd take the crowd outside to sing the final verse to the men across the street in jail who had been arrested in raids earlier that night. He became the first openly gay candidate in the United States to run for public office. Running in 1961, for a seat on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. He almost won by default. And it's here's, here's what happened. On the last day for candidates to file petitions, city officials realized that there were fewer than five candidates running for the five open seats, which would have assured him a seat. By the end of the day, 34 candidates had filed. He garnered some 6,000 votes shocking political pundits and setting in motion the idea that a gay voting bloc could wield real power in city politics. As, as Zaria put it, from that day on, nobody ran for anything in San Francisco without knocking on the door of the gay community. <laughs> so look, what I know is there's somebody each of us knows. There's somebody I know who's worthy and wonderful, someone I know is fearless and free, someone I know is blessed and beautiful. Who can it be? Ah, it's me. <laughs> it's me. And that's true for all of us. That's true for all of us. And we can see that in many of the folks who gave of their life in order to make a difference. Oh yes, that's right, it's me. Somebody, someone I know 
is all of that. My prayer is that, well, this never ends. We have a month that we have dedicated to sharing some information, some history, some ideas, a narrative. Ideally, through all of this, we'll recognize that someone we know is all of that and more. We'll include ourselves in it, and that will support us in seeing and recognizing others. Someone I know. Oh, yes, that's right, it's me. That was written by Ty Stevens. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So, from 1950 to 1967, the Matashin Society was formed by activist Harry Hay and one of the most sustained gay rights groups in the United States. The society focused on social acceptance and other support for gays. What you see on the screen is a brochure that's folded out and it's giving them, if you're arrested then, what to do. It calls it the pocket lawyer. So it's that kind of, they were offering those kinds of resources to folks. Does that make sense? Good. And then I want to share with you about Pearl M. Hart, a social justice advocate and civil rights champion dedicated to defending the oppressed, especially women, children, LGBTQ, and immigrants. She was a staunch defender of gay rights. She fought for anti-entrapment laws, the right to, she's an attorney, by the way, and appeared on behalf of many victims of entrapment and police harassment, often waiving or minimizing her freedom. In the 1950s, she helped found the Chicago chapter of the Mattachine Society. In addition to gay rights, she was a starch defender of immigration, immigrant rights, taking a case for the constitutional rights of aliens to the U.S. Supreme Court where she declared, and I quote, I defend the foreign born against the present deportation hysteria because of a consciousness that it was the foreign born and their children who built this nation of ours and who have been its most loyal partisans. You know, we want somebody saying that tomorrow morning. Standing in that awareness and wanting to validate that it's more than this moment of greed and oppression. Yes? Yes. The Daughters of Bilitis, the first lesbian rights organization is founded in San Francisco in 1955. I need you to hear these years. By Dorothy Louise Taliaferro. She's called Del Martin and, and she and Phyllis Lyon. And Martin and Lyon would later become the first same-sex couple, same gender-loving couple to be married in San Francisco when that became legal. So I want to remind you that your present circumstances never determine where you can go. They simply determine where you start. Just, it's from this point. This is what's going on. This is how high the mountain is. This is how low the valley is. It just determines what I must do now in order to move forward. Yes. In May 1959, Cooper's Donuts was a gay gathering spot, a popular meeting place on Main Street in Los Angeles called the Gay Ghetto of the 1950s. So one night, May 1959, the police attempt to arrest three people for illegally congregating. So, you know, 
you understand, because that, as black folks, that's, that's historical. It's loitering, and so we understand from the 14th Amendment, don't we? So a large number of transgendered women and others began pelting the officers with donuts and coffee and paper plates until they're forced to retreat and return with larger numbers. When the police return, a riot ensues and it shuts down Main Street for an entire day. I want you to know that Stonewall was not the first, that folks took took their, you know, we get our power where we can. We endeavor to get our control where we can, yes? But look, there's always something else that is happening, simultaneous. And in July 1961, Illinois makes history. Now, I wasn't ready for this. I don't know a whole lot about Illinois, but I did not know this. I did not know that they became the first state to decriminalize homosexuality and behavior. What they did was they, said they repealed the sodomy laws, saying what consenting adults do in private, they can do. I did not know that in 1961, Illinois changed that law. And what I want to, I'm trying to give you a sense of, of time because there is something about critical mass. You know, where you breathe into a thing long enough, where you behave in a way long enough, that means that things begin to happen. You don't, you don't necessarily have to do everything exactly the same way. Some of what you've done continues just by its own momentum, if you will. You see what I'm saying? You've, you've now built a mold. People are thinking a certain way. So by right of consciousness, what you've done is you've changed consciousness. And so other things can then happen. This is something that, because I couldn't find the film, I'm going to have to tell you about it, just to complete the circle here. There was a film that was released, or, or it was actually um, televised in 1961. It was called The Rejected. Originally, the name for it was The Ones. I think that was... Let me just, what's that? The gay ones, thank you. Oh, y'all reading my notes. I'm like, I know y'all, but thank you. Y'all gonna be my lifeline. I just didn't know I needed a lifeline. Right, it was originally entitled The Gay Ones and then was changed to The Rejected. And what we know is that visibility of LGBTQ people on television didn't exist. I remember a time when somebody black was on television and you had, it was your responsibility to call everybody. You had to let people know because that was an event. And so it wasn't that long ago that that was true for gay people. That we were shocked to see gay people showing up in cast. And now, you know, now there's I, more and we're becoming more and more inclusive in that way with the personalities and the characterization. So it's much more commonplace than it was certainly. And this is interesting, September 11th, 1961. So my sense is that this shook things up, not to the same extent that September 11th of 2001 did, but it was its own, it was its own quake, if you will. 
and it ush 1961 ushered in major media milestones for the gay community. The publication of Jess Stern's book, The Sixth Man, startled American public with its pronouncement that sexuality, homosexuality affected one in six men. The Motion Picture Association of America lifted the ban on the overt portrayal of homosexuality in Hollywood films. We could have had a quiz and none of us would have passed this. In 1961, that was changed. I did not know that and cannot think back to seeing it. Because I know I was watching Rock Hudson and stuff, and I know you did. So anyhow, okay, on network TV, homosexual subtext was still unacceptable. But John Rivas Jr.'s groundbreaking documentary, The Rejected, aired on San Francisco's educational television station, KQED. It was a made-for-television documentary film about homosexuality produced by KQED that unemotionally, it says, examined the plight and social treatment of gay men. It was the first documentary program on homosexuality broadcast on American television. First shown on KQED, it was later syndicated to the National Educational Television Networks across the United States. It received positive critical reviews. He was an independent production producer, excuse me, who wrote up his idea, originally titled, as I said, The Gay Ones. He explained his goals for the program as follows. The objective of the program will be to present as objective analysis of the subject as possible without being overly clinical. The questions will be basic ones. You know, as I read this, I thought, how brilliant, how brilliant at that time to write it in just the right way. You know, because part of that time, I've already told you that in Philadelphia in the early 60s, they dressed much like we dressed folks for civil rights, for sit-ins and all. You know, you never saw nobody in old coveralls. You never saw nobody, what folks aren't wearing sweats then, but you never saw them in cat. You know what I mean? You never saw them dressed down. Everybody was clean and starched and put together. Why? Because there's an image. And you want to make sure that you are putting on the best possible face to limit the, the negative response, that it can't be about everything. It can't, they can't take the low road. They can't just skim off the top for why we don't like them. They're going to have to tell some other greater truth. And so this was some of that. So, so some of his questions, the basic questions were, who are the gay ones? How did they become gay? How do they live in a heterosexual society? What treatment is there by medicine or psychotherapy? How are they treated by society? How would they like to be treated? Can you imagine that he included that question? Sometimes, now we won't like all the questions, but the fact that you got that one in, because nobody was really caring, publicly. Certainly not for any televised project on how would they like to be treated. It was more what we gonna do with them. Or not with them, but about them. About them, right? So the rejected focus, I need to tell you, exclusively on gay men, with no representation of lesbians or trans persons. So the commercial stations, of course, turned down the program, as did sponsors, and all of that. Um, all of it was shot in the studio except for one segment on location at the Black Cat Bar. 
it says that they did it on a budget of less than $100. Now, again, it's, it's 1961. Um, they used a talk show format, breaking down the subject matter into a series of smaller topics. Each segment included one or more subject matter experts discussing homosexuality from a different perspective. Within each segment was presented a stereotype about homosexuality and then challenged the validity of that stereotype through expert interviews. They were doing the work. So the expert interviews were Margaret, Re Mar I'm sorry, Margaret Mead, speaking from an anthropological standpoint. Now, of course, it was never mentioned that she was lesbian, but she, was, she still got to stand in um, and be heard. She spoke of the positive roles that homosexuality had played in the cultures of ancient Greece and the South Sea Islands and the Native American society. She noted that uh, she noted that it is society and not the individual that determines how sexuality and homosexual, homosexual behavior <clears throat> is viewed. Psychiatrist Carl Bowman of the Langley Porter Psychiatric Institute, he explained the Kinsey scale of human sexuality and who spoke against a punitive approach to treating homosexual patients. The Episcopal Bishop of San Francisco, James Pike, and Rabbi Alan Alvin Fine addressed religious topics. Each man espoused his belief that sodomy laws should be repealed because, in his opinion, homosexuality was a mental illness. Pike specifically compared homosexuality to chronic alcoholism, but called for homosexuals to be treated, quote, with love, concern, and interest, end quote and for not condemning them as evil. The city, now this is a surprise to me. I would have thought in 1961 that such a program would lean in another direction. And I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not presenting it as if we're doing it today and heart and soul produced it. I'm simply saying that incrementally we can begin to see the power of consciousness. The city district attorney, Thomas C. Lynch, covered legal issues, along with lawyers J. Albert Hutchison, Al Bendick, and Morris Lowenthal, who had previously defended the Black Cat Bar during its 15-year legal battle against police um, for, and government harassment. The Mattachine Society spoke for gay men. It was unusual for its time that this film included actual gay people as opposed to presenting just heterosexual experts on gay people. Oh, Lord. The California's then Attorney General, Stanley Mosk, opened the program by reading this statement. With all the revulsion that some people feel towards homosexuality, it cannot be dismissed by simply ignoring its presence. It is a subject that deserves discussion. We might as well refuse to discuss alcoholism or narcotics addiction, addiction excuse me, as to refuse to discuss this subject. It cannot be swept under the rug. It will not just go away. So it, the film received was critically and properly re, well received. Um, and it says that, where I want to get, oh, they received, so KQED received a number of letters, of course, in the hundreds. 97% of which were positive, and many of the writers encouraged the station to make more programs like it. 
There's a book service in San Francisco that published a transcript of the rejected, and close to 400 people ordered copies of it. What I love about that piece and that awareness is that I could feel the beginning of a shift. I could feel that that's, that's like a critical mass moment. It's a moment when, when common culture leans a little in. You know, they don't just jump into the deep end of the pool, but they lean in far enough so that people tuning in at home get a different version of the story. I have to tell you, I am so, I, I'm proud to be a member of PBS. You know what I mean? To, I, I just, in that moment, I could feel, I was like, yes, yes. So this isn't a commercial for that. I'm not even gonna. Y'all know. Y'all know what this means. So look, Dr. Daniel Morgan, in Guidance for a Spiritual Journey, offers us this affirmation. I am about living a full, happy, and successful life. I face the reality that if I think weakness and limitation, they become necessary and inevitable. But if I think health, happiness, and harmony, I break any seeming cycle of otherness by which I have previously been plagued. I declare I am a part of God, the divine whole from which I was pressed out. My daily experience expresses my expectation of life sublime. Oh, oh, let's breathe that in. Let's breathe that in with an attitude of gratitude. Yes, because y'all know I could. What? I could go on and on and on about the good that is unfolding in our lives, not just now, but always. I could do that because I'm grateful, so grateful just for knowing the goodness that God is.